we didn't uh, know a lot about the topic of the fight against corruption. We cared a lot about the topic and that's why we wanted and we had all the energy for spending our evenings or uh, holidays on studying all of these things and engaging the Brazilian community on this. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This week on the pod, Irio Muskov, a software engineer who uses artificial intelligence to fight corruption. The motivation to invite Irio to the pod stems from a session that Stephen Garthorp, Christopher Starke and myself organized for last year's Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Forum in Kiev. The session was called artificial intelligence as an anti-corruption tool. And in this session, we discussed with the audience how AI can be used to fight corruption. We were made aware of a report written by Per Avik for the U4, the Anti-Corruption Resource Center, in which he summarizes already existing AI tools in the fight against corruption. One of them was called Operação Serenata do Amor and is a Brazilian anti-corruption effort that uses machine learning techniques to fight corruption. The interview that you're about to hear with Irio covers this project as well as a tweet bot that automatically tweets out suspicious cases of corruption. And we also discuss what ethical and other challenges this project raises. Towards the end, we outline how other countries could learn and adopt such tools. We hope you enjoy the episode. So welcome to Kickback. My name is Neil Kovis. I'm here with Christopher Starker. And this week we are very fortunate to invite Irio Muskov to the podcast. So as a first main question, we wanted to hear, Irio, how did this project come about? And could you tell our listeners first what this project Operação Serenata do Amor is actually all about. Yes. So firstly, thank you so much for the invitation for the podcast. So I'm one of the founders of this project. It's called Operação Serenata de Amor. In English, Operation Love Serenade. It came about in the uh, start of 2016. We had many different reasons for creating. And uh, that's probably one of the reasons why it lasted for so long. So it, it still exists. I'm I'm not one of the leaders anymore, but uh, we didn't have one or two reasons. We, we didn't want to create this project just because it was our research project. We didn't want to create this project because we wanted to become famous or anything, but we had also stronger reasons. So even though we, we didn't uh, know a lot about the topic of the fight against corruption, we cared a lot about the topic, and that's why we wanted And we had all the energy for spending our evenings or uh, holidays on studying all of these things and engaging the Brazilian community on this. And uh, talking about the, the Brazilian community, yeah, so this project was started when uh, I was actually doing a summer boot camp here in Berlin, where I live today. But it was focused on the Brazilian government. So uh, I was doing this summer uh, boot camp here, studying uh, machine learning. And I had this final project that I needed to create to apply something with machine learning. I had this idea of analyzing Brazilian open data. And I gave this idea to my advisor. 
but unfortunately it wasn't it wasn't uh, good enough for the bootcamp because it was not focused on the European market. So I, I created something else, and then I decided to return to Brazil to do it anyway. So I started analyzing the open data related to a reimbursement quota that we have in the Brazilian Congress. So basically, in the same way that we as professionals have usually money for paying for our meals and for our transportation. The politicians also have this, maybe a little higher than we do. So in Brazil, they have a monthly quota of about 10,000 euros, where they can spend with meals, with office supplies, with transportation. And I didn't know a lot about politics, so I thought that um, maybe there's something behind all of this data. So if all of this is open, then why is not anyone looking at it? So I found the initial things and I started sharing with a few friends. Two of them actually accepted an invitation to keep looking into this data. These people were Eduardo Kuducos, who nowadays works for the uh, World Bank in Washington, and uh, Felipe Cabral, who is unfortunately in the middle of the epidemic in Milano nowadays, but uh, he also is very interested in open data too. Could you walk our listeners through tool you develop? So the way that we started, it was not a tool at all. We just downloaded. It was about 10 gigabytes. So we started doing this analysis. We found some very suspicious cases of corruption. And then uh, over the development of the project, we started using less and less the, the word of corruption because possible misuse of public money. And uh, once we started finding these things, we didn't know what to do. So our first action was to ask directly for the Congress people. So I want to send them an email and ask, okay, so do you know about this law that prevents you to do X? And here I have open data telling you that you did X. So what do you want to do about this? Two lawyers advised against doing this. Uh, we wanted to even call and record the calls and put it over uh, YouTube. We ended up not doing, it was only uh, a planning. But uh, what we did was to question the actual Congress about it. So they didn't have any law forcing them to answer us. But at least we have all the codes for the questions that we did over the, through the system. Uh, once we reported uh, uh, a few thousand cases and we didn't get many answers, like many of them were, were answered and even the money returned, but it was about like 8% of all the reports. So what we did was to actually create a Twitter account that would tweet about all of these suspicious cases. So we were not saying that uh, this person was corrupt or anything. So you can actually translate from Portuguese all the tweets. And uh, literally, we, we say something like, congressperson at handler, spent this money, here's the link, and we think this is suspicious. Can you help me find out? So this way, we are, we are given the right to reply as a journalist. At first, we tried to, to do them before sharing with the public, but they didn't answer. So we decided to start sharing with the public, with the public at the same time that they know about it. All right. So what your love serenade does is it, it uses publicly available data and sort of flags suspicious cases, right? 
Could you tell us a little bit more about the type of data that you use? Is it only public registry data, so open, open government data, or do you also draw on other sources of data? And then maybe sort of, you know, how, how does the, the algorithm that you employ actually work? Back then, we didn't know a lot about politics. We didn't know a lot about how to do what we wanted to do, but at least it gave us enough energy because we, we really wanted to accomplish these things, to start learning about it. So I didn't say, but Kudukus is a sociologist and uh, Cabral is a businessman and I was a software developer. So Kudukus as a sociologist could teach us a lot about how a democracy works. It gave us good directions of where to go, of whom to talk. So we knew that we wanted to use as much open data as possible. So it was a deliberate decision. We actually stopped many, for many different days to think about this. And uh, we didn't know a lot about organizations fighting against corruption, but we knew that it was dangerous. And we knew that we wanted to be able to do this and be sure that if we, we received a lawsuit or anything worse than that, then at least for us, we knew that we were, doing, we were not doing anything wrong. And we also wanted to be able to tell people this. So I don't want to tell you that this thing that I'm doing is right. I want you to be able to audit, even without technical knowledge. So I'm not going to close the source code from, of my software. I'm going to publish everything on the internet on a platform called GitHub. So maybe you don't know how to code, but uh, maybe you are a journalist and you know how to read some basic statistics. And uh, if you know English, then you can understand that I'm reading this file that, that it was downloaded by, from this URL. So we, make, we made everything reproducible, and this is what we wanted. So this is one of the reasons why we always pushed for not using closed data, and we never did. Because by using public data, we would not be able to be auditable at any time by anyone. So we were even offered many interesting private data sets but we gladly refused. How it does can, work? Can I jump in here for, for a second? Yes, because this would, would also be one of the, the questions that I have on my list here is, of course, which data do you use? But then also, which data don't you use that may be accessible to you, but you have some reasons for not using them? Could you maybe outline a specific example or a specific data set that you would never use even if you had it and even if it make your your algorithm better and even more accurate so one of the data sets that we would never use for instance is the data set from the public health system we knew that this was open but understanding how the congress works for approving laws even though that we were allowed to use it we believed that much information from this data set should not be public. And we believed that it will become closed if we do our job properly as citizens for pushing people to close these sources. So why we could, how we could use this? We don't have information about what diseases the politicians have, but I think we had uh, things like the name of the parents. We may have had like addresses. We could have given a lot of information that is not easily accessible. So yes, we can probably Google this and with a few 
minutes, maybe hours of work we can find, but uh, we had this uh, interior public data that we could have used with the setting that's here. Yeah, so uh, how it works. Basically, we have a, a law inside the Congress given all the regulations for how to use this congressional quota. So as I said, they have this, this quota of about 15,000 euros per month, but uh, they cannot use all of this for renting airplanes, for instance. They can use like one third of it. So they cannot use all of this for uh, renting cars. So there are some limits, even considering this large amount, that they have to fulfill. And uh, what we did was to read the data set. So we started with, a, with an XML, but we converted to a CSV, to a spreadsheet, which was much easier to read. So you can imagine this, if, if you don't know what a CSV is, you can imagine this as a spreadsheet, as an Excel spreadsheet. You open it and you have one column for the name of the congressperson, you have another column for the party, for the year of the expense, for the company ID that received this money. We had also the state of this amount and we, have the, we had also the amount. And uh, another interesting that was not on the same data set, we found after multiple hours browsing the website of the Congress, we had also access to the picture of the receipt. So it was not on the same place, but if you browse enough, you're going to find a format of URL that if you get the ID from here and you go to the URL, you see the picture. So the way that we started was to convert this large and uh, not so good format into CSV. We filtered this by congressperson, and we wanted to catch the most obvious things. So first, I want to find out if they are spending above the quota for each of the categories. So we didn't know how the Congress approves all of these expenses. We were then invited to meet them in person, but when we started, we, we didn't know. And then we, we wanted to know if we would it be able to find these most obvious cases. We found maybe like five or 10 cases, possibly even data entry mistakes, because I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure that we had millions of expenses throughout a few years. So we were doing this in 2016. We had data starting from 2009, 2011. So uh, counting all of these millions of expenses from 500 politicians, then we found like 10 cases. So uh, yeah, probably not good enough for even caring. Probably mistakes in the data itself. So okay, this is the most obvious things. I want to create another really small script that is going to look into another regulation. So I'm going to find out if they are spending too much because this is not a like, strictly defined rule that they have, but they have uh, something in the line, considering that you are a politician and you are representing the citizens, you should care about public money and not spend too much. So if we as humans can look into data and look into a, receipt, into a receipt and say that, oh, this meal in Rio, like this does not cost this much. Probably paid for multiple people. And then we can go to the restaurant website and check all the prices. So we wanted to find something simple that could translate our human ability of actually understanding when something is more expensive than it should. So we created, a, this is one of the models. So we created a, many different models, many different classifiers 
that would raise suspicions over uh, one expense. So one single receipt, one single uh, reimbursement could have many suspicions. And again, this is not a proof because we are citizens, we cannot prove anything, we are not a judge. But these are suspicions that we can raise. We can uh, ask, ask them about it. So do you think this is right? Did you commit any mistake? So what we did to translate this human ability of detecting when a meal is too expensive is to use basic statistics. So we have a way of finding outliers in data that follows a normal distribution. It goes like three standard deviations above the mean. Like this is not a method from the 2000s. Like it has many decades already. We had many reasons to believe that this followed a normal distribution. And then using this method, we found out a few thousand cases and we started creating multiple different classifiers. And at the end of the initial period of the project, what we did was to gather all the people who were working in the core of the project to manually look into the reimbursements. So in Brazil, even now, we don't have any way of reporting these cases anonymously. So the constitution says that if you are a citizen, you want to report, then you do it, but I need to know your name. Unless this is uh, something for uh, like a criminal case, but this is not the case. So there was no way of creating a software that could report this. So, so if we wanted to report, then we needed to report as citizens. And I'm not going to trust on my own model for this. I, I want to look this carefully, at least when we started, right? We, we didn't know about how many false positives that we had. So we created a, like a very simple system that basically had a table of all these suspicions. You had a button and you would also install a Chrome extension that if you click on, on a button, it would open multiple tabs with the picture of the receipt with all the information that we had about it. It would also Google the name of the company. It would put the address in the Google Street View. And then by looking into all of these tabs, you as a citizen would judge if you want to report to the Congress or not. And if you wanted, you would click on a button of the Chrome extension and then select the category of the report. So this is a too expensive meal. This means that uh, the person is above the quota for the category. It means that uh, this person is paying for uh, alcoholic beverages, which was also for feeding. And then if you click on this button, if you're signing with your login in the Congress website, then uh, basically in uh, less than five minutes, you would be able to report the case. So that's how we, we were able to report thousands of cases in one week of work. So Irio, that's very interesting. So that would basically require a very active society or citizens that are willing to invest some time and effort into investigating, right? Becoming a little detectives themselves to some extent and then reporting and maybe also taking the risk of maybe falsely accusing uh, public officials. Yeah, what, what happened next? <laughs> how did you uh, solve that issue? Or was there an issue in the first place? Was it, how many people were willing to do that? Yeah, so as I was explaining, it started with these three people working over the weekends, on holidays, every evening, basically. We knew that we wanted to do this more often. So I, I didn't want to make this as a, my weekend job. So for being able to do this, we needed money. 
for paying people. I want to pay other people before myself, and then <laughs> yeah, everything is going to uh, become easier. We thought about many different ways of financing this project, but uh, the best way that we could find out is through crowdfunding, but also as a validation effort. I wanted to know if people really care about this topic enough to give us money. Like first, we need to understand people, we need to convince them, and then if we know them, if we know how to convince them, if we know what they care about, what they do not care about, then uh, we can uh, change our communication to be like this, not only through, for the crowdfunding. So we were successfully funded. It was, depending on how, on how you count, the first or the second largest successful crowdfunding campaign for a technology project until then in Brazil. So we raised about 20,000 euros. We hired seven other people to work for three months. And uh, with this money, we were able to be more engaged in the anti-corruption community, in the software community, in the machine learning community, and also in the journalism community. So we were learning from all of these things, from the data journalism. And uh, at the end of the three months, we wanted to create something that would last and that's why we created this short tool and this marathon for manually verifying everything and doing all the reports. So for these initial three months, we had 10 people working full-time for the project. When we ended this money, we created a recurrent campaign, something like a Patreon. Well, that's, that's so interesting. And it's really inspiring to see that uh, such a a project that started from scratch pretty much by citizens can be a variable contribution to the anti-corruption efforts that exist out there. So let me see if I get everything correctly. There is this data and you take the average of the amount that politicians spend for, let's say, a lunch. And if a person spends more than three times the deviation of that average, then Rosie automatically tweets out there may be a specific case and people now have the opportunity to look into it and then it opens the different tabs that you mentioned in the browser. And if people then come to the conclusion that this is more than just a suspicion, then they can report that directly within five minutes to the government. Is that pretty much how it works? Yeah. The report step, it's more simple. So we had this tool that did all of these things, the Chrome extension. So this Chrome extension is the only thing that we never open sourced because we knew that it was too powerful to do not only good things, but only also bad things. So it would make too easy for people to start reporting everything. And then the Congress and the politicians would not care about things that actually are important. So we use this tool internally between these 10 people. But once we finished this three months, uh, we created Rosie, the Twitter account, only at the end of this uh, initial three months. In the tweets, you'll have a link for a web platform that we call Jarvis, where you'll see all the information that we collected about a specific reimbursement. We collect this information not only from the public data in the Congress website, but uh, for instance, in the, in the Congress data, we have the company ID. We don't have the address. But we can go to the Federal Revenue web website and from the company ID, get the address. From the address, using the Google Maps API, 
we can get the GPS coordinates. With the GPS coordinates, we can get the picture with uh, Google Street View. In this uh, website, we show all this information that we collect. At some point, we also collected uh, simple things from uh, Yelp and from Google Maps. So if I know this is a restaurant, I want to show the website of, of the restaurant. Mm -hmm. So I give all of this information in one single page. And in the tweet, you'll have the name of the politician. And then uh, people can do whatever they want. So I don't give them the tools for reporting. I'm just telling them that this exists. But I don't give them tools for reporting because this is one thing that we really thought through for ourselves. So we talked to to many lawyers, to many journalists, to find out how they do this with Transparency International, with open knowledge. So we wanted to learn how people report corruption cases. And since we were working on the long tail, so we were not working with large corruption cases because we had other people doing this. We were working on the long tail of small cases that we thought that maybe this is the start of the large corruption cases. Maybe you commit a mistake, so, oh, I spent my reimbursement quota in a restaurant and I paid for my family. And I, I didn't even notice. But then when I give the receipt, I, I notice, oh, actually they approved this. So maybe I should keep using this. And then over time, they learned that nobody is actually looking and they are approving. So I can start growing. So since we, are, since we were working on this small cases, we really wanted to care about the safety of the people reporting not only our core team, but also the, the citizens. So if we were to create a method for reporting, we really wanted to do really well and give them protection for it. And uh, we end up not focusing on this end of the project. I have a few follow-up questions on this. So first is when you take the average of the spendings of all politicians, you kind of have a very positive view on politicians, right? Because you assume that the majority is honest and the majority does not take their right in order to invite family and friends or something like this. So imagine the, the spendings go up because all politicians are corrupt or the majority of politicians is corrupt. Then you still would catch the highly corrupt, let's say, but you would not be able to catch minor offenses of corruption, right? Yes, two things to talk about this. So you're totally right. On one end, we were not so worried about this because even on this high end, we had so many suspicions that uh, maybe if we create this even uh, like silly model in uh, in some conferences that I uh, that I presented this project, like really AI oriented, there were one or two people saying that oh, this is not AI, this is not machine learning. Maybe this was machine learning 30 years ago. But then the, even the concept of AI changes a lot over time. So yes, it is very simple. And we decided to make it simple because it was already enough. So we don't necessarily, if you, if you know about uh, AI, about machine learning, we did experiments with neural networks, but we never actually put in production. We never used it for uh, generating suspicions. And why is that? Because at least in our context, Maybe not so much nowadays, but back then, it was really hard to make the model transparent, to ask the model why you're giving me this results. So sort so, of the explainability of the outcome, right? Yes. So I'm okay with having a simpler model, even less cases, but these cases are good enough for making my point. 
that it is possible to use AI to find those cases. That that's very plausible. Very plausible to take the yeah the easier approach because you still catch enough cases. So in in the interview, you argue that you're not reporting any confirmed cases of corruption or something. So you for you, it's very important to raise that it's only a suspicion, that this is an irregularity and people can look further into it. But what I was wondering, and so it's a somewhat maybe critical question, is do you think that the public will make that distinction? Or do you think a Twitter follower who follows the Twitter account sees the name of a, the politician and does not take the effort to click on the link and to check the case, but just, ah, uh, okay, there's another corruption case by this and that politician. Yes. So this is a problem that exists. We were and are aware of it, but this is something that we cannot change. So we can do our best. And we took many decisions on the language that we use to do our best, but we cannot do everything. So one of the things that we did that was criticized a lot, especially by journalists, was that we never ever used the party together with the politician name. Because like, we have more than 500 Congress people in Brazil. So you vote and you don't even remember the name like a few months later. So you are generally looking only for the party name. And then, uh, oh, so this person is from this party. So yeah, another corruption case. So we never put the party name together with the name, seeking to run away from this. So at least I, I don't want to give you this information. If you click in the link, if you look into the large dashboard, you're going to find it. But then uh, I'm doing my best. So this can happen, but we generally tended to choose the words very carefully. So all the articles that we published on, on our blog, all, all the interviews that we did, we, uh, we did thinking a lot about the words that we use. So from the beginning, we already had a marketing-oriented document, like, okay, how you should talk about this specific things. Exactly. So I think what you described is a sort of automated way of doing part of the investigative journalism to some extent, right? Like you're taking some of the load of investigative journalists, but you keep some of the load explicitly on their side so that you don't make it too easy. Maybe also for people who, for example, are primarily getting their information on Twitter with a short attention span and just you're retweeting it based on political affiliation. I think it's very interesting that you made that deliberate choice. I had a, a question for you, Irio, that sort of relates to the impact of these tools. So do you have any, whether empirical evidence, anecdotal evidence, any sort of other evidence that it has an impact? Yes. Once we reached one year of a project, we wanted to prove people that what we created had a positive impact, especially for people who funded us, because I already asked you money and you gave me. And many of you are not even reading our messages anymore. Like I've gone uh, in conferences, I, I heard more than once, oh, I gave you money. So what you're thinking about this thing that we're doing, oh, I don't follow it. Anyway, we wanted to prove people that it was effective and it, it has been effective since we started. One of the best ways of doing this is to do an experiment. We considered this internally, but it was totally not approved because this would probably mean that we would randomly choose specific people for reporting and randomly choose other people for not reporting. Since we had so many cases from 
all the different parties, all the different states of the country, then uh, in theory, we, we could do some sort of experiment like this, but we decided not to. So all the evidence that we have are uh, not very strong, but we have a high correlation. So there's, there is an article on our median uh, analyzing this. So there is a high correlation with the specific times of the project, like when we started talking public, when we did all the thousands of reports to the Congress, when we created the Twitter account. I, I don't have the specific numbers. I can give you the link later so we can put it there. But with this specific dates, we found that the amount that the Congress people spent using this congressional quota actually decreased by a lot after, uh, with these specific dates. And uh, specifically, the people who we reported decreased like 10, 20 times more. Again, it's not a causation, it's correlation. But uh, since we saw many politicians tweeting about it, so they usually don't use the name of the project, but uh, we, we had a few cases where the politician recorded a video saying, oh, so there's this group of people accusing me of using this congressional quota. So what happened was this. So I already talked to my assistant and he returned the money and I strictly asked him not to do it again. This happened more than once. Uh, dozens of times happened that the politician uh, received a mention on Twitter. And uh, maybe after a few dozens, hundreds of people replying to him, he posted a picture of the proof that he returned the money. So the, these are indications that show that the politicians started noticing that this data is public and people are looking at it. And what keeps you motivated, I, I would assume, right? Yes. Um, so you see that yeah, the project is successful. So following up on this, I was wondering, you mentioned briefly that you went into, uh, into Congress and that you talked to journalists. I was wondering what the general reception of the tool was. How did the politicians react once you confronted them with it? How did the public react? How did the funders react? And uh, of course, also journalists. And maybe also, did you get invitations from other civil activists who thought, oh, this is actually a good idea. I would like to do that in my country as well, or in my region, or something like this. So how was the reception in the Congress? We had different receptions by different types of people. The first reaction that we received was from the open data team inside the Congress. So the people actually working on publishing this, those files. When we converted those large XMLs into really small CSVs, we took 10 gigabyte files from the official website and turned them into 10 megabyte files, compressed in, in different formats. W once we finished this, we published the source code of the script and we wrote a short article saying, okay, so we found this, this is a problem because of this, and here's the link for fixing it. It was really short, not condemning anyone. The reception was that uh, I received an email from a person in this open data team saying, thank you so much for your article. Uh, we didn't know that people wanted this file this way. So next time you come to Brasilia, the capital, let me know. And when I traveled to Brasilia, I let people know that, oh, I'm going to Brasilia. And this synced with the invitation to visit many different places in the government, including the Chamber of Deputies, the Congress. So the open data team was very receptive because they know about things that are happening. 
but uh, what they have to do is like is, is to publish all of this data. And uh, even though they are citizens, they cannot maybe do everything. It's it's even dangerous for them. So we had this reception from the politicians, from the legislative power, the people who were accused in some way by us. They were not so receptive. They liked the project. Like some people expressed, especially in front of cameras, that they liked the project, but they thought that there was much more corruption in, in the other powers. So we started looking into other data sets, but also from the civic servants in general, from the, from the Congress. In, in their view, we were causing some problems for them because basically when we arrived for, for the meeting, not only some civic servants were there, but also the lawyer of the Congress. And basically, before us, they were receiving like 20 requests for information for a week or something like this. And with us, they received thousands in, in a single week. So when we arrived for this meeting, they knew all of our full names, all of our IDs, because we have to give them, but they didn't have to look to the paper to know this. So basically, his reception was that it is good that someone is doing this, but you're, you're giving me a lot of work to do. I don't have powers to change anything. I don't have power to change the law to start refusing these requests for reimbursement. So even though that there's legislation saying that politicians should not ask for reimbursement, at the end of the day, they are the bosses here, so I have to accept. And uh, one very funny thing, maybe not for her, was that the manager of the department that received all of these requests for reimbursements is called Rosie. We didn't know when we named the Twitter account also Rosie. So I'm pretty sure that the politicians thought that uh, it was not something created by the civic community. So I wanted to ask you a question that relates to some of the work that uh, Christopher and I have been doing on AI as an anti-corruption tool. We've sort of developed a framework in which we argue that there are two main dimensions according uh, to which you can differentiate the different tools that are currently being used or developed. The first dimension is basically whether it's in the step of prevention, detection, or prosecution against corruption, right? So sort of like in which, how early are you uh, using the, the technology? And the second one is to what extent are humans involved? So is it a human in the loop, is a human on the loop, or is human out of the loop, right? Is it completely autonomous? And I think Rosie in particular, <laughs> now I'm talking about the Twitter bot, uh, mm -hmm. presents an interesting case for that, right? Like, could you talk a little bit about how humans are involved and where you maybe explicitly remove <coughs> humans? Because one argument that is made in the literature right now is that maybe we should really try to remove humans from some decision-making processes that are very corruption-prone. Because Let's say if the algorithm that you developed just flagged cases, but there would always be a corruption prosecutor still responsible for whether to publish them or not, we might run into a very typical problem that exists in societies where there is a lot of corruption, that the prosecutor themselves might be corrupted, right, and not be willing to disclose cases. And uh, especially, for example, when those are cases that are uh, from the same political party and so on. So... I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the explicit decision, which role humans play in this whole process. Since we started the project, we met with many different people researching the topic, but also working as auditors in the government, outside the government. 
And uh, generally, by no means I said they are wrong, but generally they feel that they are required for this effort uh, because a machine cannot think about the, all these circumstances. Not everything that we need to analyze is open. Not everything is in data sets. So even about uh, something like, OK, so I'm analyzing this specific case that I'm studying for two months as a prosecutor. And uh, I'm studying this case. I'm reading newspapers from years ago. And probably a machine will not do this. So in-depth analysis, yeah, right? Yes. So they think that they are required to make the final decision. But for many intermediate decisions, actually, a machine could help them. So some opinions on, on this end. I believe that as much as possible, all of these models should be transparent because a judge will not know how to read math to understand all the weights of a neural network. And we have many problems caused by putting too much technology into social problems. So there's a, f a famous case, I think was in the state of New York, where they created a, a model for deciding where to put the police to look for crimes. And in the end, uh, they were choosing a specific neighborhoods that had the most crimes, yes. But by putting more police into these neighborhoods, you will find more cases. And if you're not putting the police in other neighborhoods, of course, you're not going to find so. The results actually will show you that you were right. A self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Yuri. I think it's a really fascinating project that you're doing. And when we researched it a little bit online, we found that there was a certain period of time when you were blocked from Twitter. Is that correct? Where there are no tweets. Can you tell us a little bit more what happened there? So we created the bot, the Twitter account, Rosie, as a response for the Congress. So first, we started talking directly. We wanted to talk directly to the Congress people. Uh, we decided not to after some recommendations. We went to the Congress. They, we reported thousands of cases, thousands of cases, and they told us that we are not the ones who should be looking into this. And then again, we went to lawyers, to journalists, help me to do the right thing. How can I do this? Because the auditing organizations, they all love the project, but uh, I asked them, okay, so I have 10,000 cases. Can I give them to you? And they said, unfortunately not, because the salary of an auditor is this, if I put him or her to work for, on this for a week, it's going to cost more than the amount that uh, I'm, I'm going to be able to return. So I love this project, but keep doing yourselves. So uh, we created this Twitter account to start mentioning this, these politicians. So we were giving them right to reply from the beginning, but uh, we are not 100% sure of the reason why we were banned. But, uh, probably 90% sure that the politicians started reporting us because the reason that Twitter gave us is that we were going against the terms and we were spamming people. Which is interesting because I saw your tweet that you posted in, in February after you got banned in, in December, so after sort of a two-month hiatus. 
in which you say explicitly, yes, we are a bot, but we are very explicit about the fact that we are a bot. We are not a bot that tries to pose as a human. We're not trying to deceive people. And we're very open about that. And we're also open about our code. And I, I thought that was quite a remarkable deal with it. And I, from the responses that you got with a lot of retweets, likes, and a, a hashtag that was trending to unblock Rosie, I think you luckily achieved that yeah, you were able to come back and continue. And I think up until today, there are tweets coming out uh, almost daily. We will link to the Twitter account, obviously, in the show notes so people can check it out. I want to also thank you from my side. I think this was very, very interesting. We, you were very generous also with your time. Where can people find out about your work? Do you have a website that you want to plug in, maybe your own Twitter handle, uh, just so that people can find out? Yes. So and what's next for you, actually? Sort of what you what you have, you know, what's the next tool that you develop? Uh, when is Rosie going global? We started looking into other ways of expanding the project. So this one is focused on the congressional data from this re reimbursement quota. We started looking into the public gazettes. This is one thing that uh, is not as easy and is not as available to read through software. So it's a much more challenging project. We started it. There are people working on it. It's called Diário Oficial, literally Public Gazette in, uh, in Portuguese. So we started looking into this. What happens in the future? Nowadays, the people who started the project are distributed not only throughout Brazil, but throughout the globe. We have people in the US, all parts of Brazil, Europe, and we've been talking about this project to many different people. We understand that the problems are not the same. So I moved to Berlin about two years ago, and I kept working for, for some time on, on Serenata also. But I wanted also to start applying all of this. I want to create the German Serenata. I want to do something here. It took me some time to understand that the problems are not the same. I, I could say that you have champagne problems again. So uh, we had conversations with people in Italy, in India, in Mexico, less in China, so Poland also. So they are all interested in having this project there, but uh, in general, they don't want to make it. So. Sounds like a reoccurring issue when it comes to anti-corruption. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be part of a German serenata, but I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the context of the culture here, of what people care about. So I'm not even talking about the, the language. I'm talking about where to find things, what things yeah. should I look for, because I'm probably not looking for congressional expenses. I don't know if they exist, but I would assume that this is not really a problem here. If, talking about, if we're talking about corruption, then I need to understand the organization of the government. I need to understand the politicians. And this takes me some time. I've been here for, for two years. Yeah, so people want to do this, but not enough to start doing it. Uh, what I've been doing lately, I'm hoping that in the next years, we as a team will be able to expand this for longer. So as I said, the three founders, 
One is in Washington, another is in Berlin, another is in Milano. There are many different problems that people care about in these three different countries. But uh, we still talk every day. We still have the interest for expanding, but it is something that uh, we need to plan because the next project is not going to have the same size as Serenata. There's a good chance that it's going to be something global and uh, we need more people, we need more countries, more money and all of that. So all of this is possible. It just well, that's that, that's a great way to, to end, right? Like all of this is possible, we are going global, but at the same time, I think what you just said is a bit confirming insights from the anti-corruption literature, namely that oftentimes there is not a one-size-fits-all solution, right? Like things that might work in one context need to be adapted to a localized knowledge and a localized context where you want to then apply them. You cannot just sort of take the template that you created and plug it yes. into Germany, Poland, or India. I think that's yes. very important for people to understand also when it comes to technology, right? So it's not like it's much different there. You do need people who know their way around, uh, even in, uh, in the internet. <laughs> so I think that's, this, uh, yeah, go for it, sorry. At this point, the project is not ready to be extended. So we took many decisions from the start to make it easy for people to extend, for people to know about it. And that's one of the reasons that we believe that this project became so known because before we had other really nice projects that you probably never heard about it because all the communication was in Portuguese, in Spanish. It makes it harder. So all of the source code for uh, what we did is open on GitHub. You're going to find a link on the official website. All the analysis are in English. You don't have to know Python or R to understand that, but you can go to GitHub and if you know English, you're going to be able to start learning how we did this and not actually believe on everything that I said. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> no, this is, this is a great way to end because especially when it comes to all these new digital technologies in the fight of anti-corruption, I think it's important to share this knowledge that is gathered there so that other people in other parts of the world can take it on and apply it to their own regional problems. So, We would like to wrap up. It was a great pleasure talking with you, Iria, about the project, which I really find very, very fascinating. And I quoted a lot in my presentations on AI and anti-corruption. Thank you for taking the time today. And uh, I'm sure we'll hear from each other soon. Thank you, Iria. That was another episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. We hope you enjoyed that episode. If you want to get in touch with the show, please do so by sending us an email to info at icrnetwork.org or by following us on Twitter. That's at kickbackgap. So kickbackgap. We always like to hear from you, to hear whether you like the episode, whether you have comments, feedback, or suggestions for future guests for the podcast. Kickback is a collaborative effort of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. We also now have a Patreon channel that we will link in the show notes, so if you want to support us financially, feel free to do so. We look forward to hearing from you, and until next time.